Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, continuing our study, picking up in chapter 5 and verse 1. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn there. As you are turning in your Bibles, I do want to make you aware of and remind you, if you were not here on Wednesday or if you did not tune in online for the special announcement that we made, uh, I would encourage you to go back and watch the video from Wednesday night. Uh, if you want, uh, you, can, you can jump ahead past the, the time of worship, and the, really the first 25 minutes of the message will kind of bring you up to speed. Um, but very exciting that uh, we do believe that uh, the Lord has brought us to a place where we are uh, planning to and ready to relocate our facility to a new building. And so uh, we are currently under contract on a new space. Now that is a conditional offer, meaning that we need to sell the building that we are in. And so that's something that you can be in prayer about. But we are very excited about what the Lord has, what we believe the Lord has for us. And again, we're under contract. Um, and so it is a, it is a church building um, that we will be purchasing. And it's about 4.7 miles from here. Okay, so not too far from us from where we are now. And uh, so again, go back and, and, and watch the video from Wednesday night. You can kind of get up to speed through that. There are some pictures available, not many, but a few. And, uh, and then things are going to begin to progress. We have of uh, inspections this week that will take the better part of the day on Friday for them to do a full inspection of the building. And, and so you can be in prayer that there's no surprises there as well. Um, and uh, during that time, we'll do our best to get some more pictures and video and things like that so that you can be uh, a little bit more informed and involved in, in, in what's happening there until we can actually physically get into the space to tour it, which we will certainly plan to do so. And so, be, uh, again, I, I, would, I would very much ask you to be in prayer over all of that because it is an exciting time for us as a body. Um, and and there's, just, there's, a, there's a lot of excitement related to going to a new place and making that move that we believe will afford us greater opportunity for ministry here in the Northeast community. And so um, I want to make sure you're aware of that. And so again, go back and check out that video so that uh, you're up to speed. Okay, let's jump into Romans here. Again, uh, Romans chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 1 this morning, we'll consider the, the, the first 11 verses of this chapter. And, and what we have here in this section of Romans is, to some degree, a little bit of a transition time. You see the first word there in verse 1, therefore. Therefore is one of those words that, that really there's a lot that goes into that. Therefore is a transition point. What it's doing there is it's the, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is connecting what he's about to say to what he has said thus far. And so for us this morning, what we must recognize is that chapters 1 through 4 in the book of Romans have given, has given us some incredible truths. We, Romans is one of those books that if you've been with us throughout our study this far, you, you, you've heard this and, and maybe even recognize it yourself or believe it yourself. Many people think that Romans is one of the most important books in the Bible. The reason being is because it gives us so much insight into our faith. Uh, it gives us understanding of the things we believe and, and gives us reason for why we should believe it. Uh, it's a foundational book for our salvation, for an understanding of our salvation. And the Apostle Paul, up until this point, has been really seeking to lay a solid foundation for understanding of why it is that we need Jesus and what it is that Jesus has done for us. And here in chapter 5, he's going to make a transition then to allowing us to see then what are the blessings? What are the things that come then from what Jesus has done? 
And in chapters 1 through 4, what we really see and what the theme is in some respects throughout the whole book is this idea of justification by faith. Paul says there at the beginning in, in chapter 5, therefore having been justified by faith. This has been the theme, and it will really be the theme throughout the entirety of the letter. This idea that we are made righteous, we are declared righteous, that's what justification is. But what Paul has done and, the, and, and what he has sought to establish and for us to really understand is that all people, all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's every one of us. Paul has not shied away from making it known that we are sinners and that we need Jesus for salvation. Furthermore, that it's not about anything that we could do to earn that salvation. There's nothing that we could accomplish. There's nothing that we can work for. What we must do is believe in the work that He has accomplished on our behalf. That He, in fact, is the one who has justified us. He is the one who has made us righteous. So then, as he has made that argument, he comes to this place now where he's able to say, because we've established this, because you now understand this, let me then inform you of the wonderful blessings that come from knowing this. And that's a wonderful thing too, and it's in the right order because so often people seek to use the blessings of salvation as drawing cards to salvation, and they skip over the whole idea of repentance. Of the fact that we need Jesus because we're sinners. Because we've fallen short of His grace, we need His forgiveness. And then, with that, comes the blessing of salvation. We can't focus on that first. We must understand that we need His forgiveness, His covering. And so then, we come into chapter 5 here, and it's exciting. And this, and this morning, for those of you taking notes, we're going to consider six blessings of salvation. Six things that we can look at that are the result of justification by faith. And so, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 11 together as we begin. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more... Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's pray once more, if you will. Father, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us, the encouragement that comes from it. And Lord, I do pray that you would give us understanding here this morning, such that as we leave this place, Lord, we would not be the same. We'd be transformed that by your Spirit, Lord, you'd pierce our hearts and our minds. 
bring, Lord, necessary change into our lives through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again here, as we make our way into this chapter, what I would share with you is that it is my desire this morning that we would uh, receive this as encouragement, and as well as a challenge, if appropriate, to live our lives in light of the truth of this word. Perspective is so important in our lives, and what Paul is giving us here is perspective that should come from understanding that we have been justified. As a believer, what it is that Christ has accomplished for us should change the way that we live our lives day in and day out. Considering what we have, what he's done for us, being declared righteous by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone. It's all about Him and what He's done for us, and it should make us feel incredible about the work that He's accomplished upon the cross. And so he begins here saying, again, therefore, connecting all of these things now to this chapter, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the first thing that Paul gives us, the first of six, is we have peace with God. Now, this is not the peace of God, but this is peace with God. And it's important to understand the difference there. Prior to salvation, whether you've recognized it or not, you have been at war with God. You have not been at peace. There is this war, there is this flesh that you have that is seeking after things that you believe will make for your peace. Whether people want to recognize it or not, we are always in the process or in the pursuit rather of something that we believe is going to satisfy us. And before Jesus, we're running after all of these different things, believing that they are going to make for our peace. One thing after another, we go after all the while, as Paul has said, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness as we read in Romans 1.18. Paul says this is what the unbeliever has been doing. God is being made known to us, his existence declared through creation in so many ways and we suppress that truth as we seek after the things of this world it james tells us in in james chapter 4 verse 4 that friendship with the world is what enmity with god you were an enemy of god before you came to christ But because God has now declared you righteous and you have believed on him in faith peace with god has been accomplished. Paul writes in Ephesians in chapter 2 verses 14 through 17, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. I remember when I first experienced this peace, and hopefully, Christian, you do as well, after years for me of what was truly running from God, in my case, pretending to be his friend, but actually maintaining a friendship with the world, remaining then an enemy of God, I finally surrendered. I waved the white flag, as it were, and I gave my life to Christ. And it's as if in that moment, nothing else in the world mattered. 
In that moment, everything seemed to become brighter, more peaceful. The weight was lifted. And so then, and this is the wonderful thing about going from a place of being an enemy of God and, and not having peace with God, that when you, when you then are declared righteous and peace has been made with God, then you begin to experience the peace of God. This gave way in this moment to the peace of God as I began to rest in Him and trust in Him and began to learn experientially of His provision for me and His care for me and the fact that I could cast all my cares upon Him because He did care for me. Kent Hughes writes that the objective fact of that peace makes possible the inner subjective experience of peace with God. And so then once we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God that's spoken of in places like Philippians in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, a passage you likely know well that tells us, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, meaning that it doesn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense that you're at peace in this moment because so many things are happening around you, yet you're experiencing this peace. This word says it will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. His peace, the peace of God, comes rushing into your life only because you are at peace with God. You're in right relationship with Him. Or elsewhere in Colossians in chapter 3, verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Is the peace of God ruling in your heart? Are you experiencing that peace today? Are you yourself at peace with God, or have you maintained a friendship with the world, yet to surrender your life to Christ? Friends, what Paul has said here at the very beginning is having been justified by faith, We have peace with God. That's the first, and we should praise Him for it. Secondly, we see in verse 2, he says, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so if you're taking notes today, the first is we have peace with God. Secondly, we have access to God. So having been justified by faith, we have access. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 tells us, for through Him... Through Him, that is Jesus, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. The middle wall of separation has been broken down. This is an incredible, glorious truth. You know, on this Father's Day, it's, it's fitting that we have the opportunity to, to rejoice in and, and to praise the Good Father. And as we consider the fact that we have access to him, it shouldn't be that far off of a thing here where, at least in my own household, I'll tell you this much, uh, there is really only one scenario where somebody who, who comes barging into my room during the middle of the night for something, seeking me for something, doesn't result in absolute chaos. That's a kid, okay? My child. Anybody else who comes barging into your room in the middle of the night, there's probably going to be something bad that goes down. Am I right? But yet my kids, they know what? That they have access. I may send them back to bed, but they can come in and not fear for their lives. They have access. And we, being children of God, have access to the Father. Where quite frankly, formerly, you would have had to fear for your life because you are not in right standing, able to come before Him. 
He says we have access into this grace in which we stand. Grace here speaks of ongoing favor with God. We are perpetually standing in this grace. Formerly, you had no standing before God. No access. Rest assured, and this is sad, that when those who do not know Christ say that they are praying, there is no prayer life. There's no communication with God. They have no right to come before Him. If you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, rest assured your prayers are effectively bouncing off the ceiling. Not that He can't hear them. He's God. But the prayer that He will respond to in your life is the prayer of repentance, surrendering your life to Him. And from there, you have access. Now you can come before Him, as Scripture tells us, boldly before His throne because of Jesus. The blood of Christ, His sacrifice, is what has made a way for us to boldly come before His throne of grace. And as a child of God, then, we have access. But you didn't have that access before. If you don't know Jesus today, you don't have access You don't have a standing with the king. And sadly then, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.12, you are without hope and without God in this world. That's a desperate place to be. But rest assured, through surrender to Christ, you can have hope. And that's where Paul takes us next. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have access to grace. And third, we have hope. Look at the latter part of verse 2 and following. He says, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint. It says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is a hope that does not disappoint. You see, formerly we had fallen short of the glory of God, given that all had sinned. But now, through justification by faith, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which first speaks to the fact that we have a hope of future glorification. What Paul is saying here is we can hope in the fact that one day we will be changed. We will be different. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Folks, whether physical limitations here and now or struggles with sin and overcoming temptation there will come a time when all of that is gone and we will be like him scripture tells us in the in a moment in the twinkling of an eye will come transformation and this hope of glory alone should afford us the motivation to daily press on truly if we are honest if we not even fully but in part grasp the significance of this promise then no matter the difficulty of the day it should prompt us to say i can do this i can press on i'm going to keep moving forward because of the hope of what god has in store for me that these things that are giving me trouble now will pass away but The wonderful thing is here, he doesn't end there. We don't just have to go, okay, that's enough, even though it would be. Paul writes further, and here he says, and not only that. You see, that's where we should find ourselves going, no way. 
Lord, that, that alone should be enough. But, but you mean there's more? There's more that you have for me? Uh, J.B. Phillips, uh, the J.B. Phillips translation renders verse 3 the following way, and I love it. He says, This doesn't mean, of course, that we have only a hope of future joys. We can be full of joy here and now, even in our trials and troubles. How is that possible? Well, we'll look there as we continue reading verse 3 and into verse 4. But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now, you might read this and find yourself saying, well, I'd prefer to hope in the glory of God alone, right? The whole tribulation thing, maybe not. Is, is that just me? It is just me. It's just me, huh? Oh, okay, not, not entirely. I see a few heads shaking out there. Not in tribulation as well. Right? That can be a difficult one. That can be a tough one for us to wrap our minds around to say, okay, yes, I want a glory in tribulation. But if we rightly understand this, if we look at this, we can find here that, that, that tribulation itself can be a source of joy. How in the world can trials, can troubles in our life be a source of joy? Well, because with God, that trouble, that tribulation has purpose. And the hope of glory, the hope of what it is that he's doing, can feed that. If I have hope of one day being glorified like him, then I can also be confident that there is a process of being made like him. Where he's working in my life, accomplishing things. And that's not just something that I've surmised on my own, but rather what the truth of Scripture declares to us. Paul writes in Philippians, in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, now this is a point when Paul has been talking about uh, pressing on, about moving forward, about seeking after a particular goal. And he says here that I may know him. This is Paul's desire, that I may know him, that I may know more of Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know him, and I want to know it all. If that means that I'm going to be made like him, if that means that I'm going to be able to share and to know what it is that he's done and what he went through more deeply. And of course, there is for us a wonderful passage that we consider often in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, which tells us, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I'll pause there for a moment, because what we read here is an incredible truth that promises us that if you are called, if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, then you can be confident that the things that are happening in your life, even difficult things, are being used by God to change you and to transform you, that he's taking those things and working them together for good and not just a good that's sort of, oh, well, well, thank you, Lord, for making some good scenario happen here, but rather, no, I'm, I'm working in you to conform you to my image. The implication there being, Christian, he's making you more like Jesus as these things are happening in your life. And that should be something also that causes us to go, whoa, you mean, God, that as these trials are coming into my life, you're able to take them and work them together to make me more like you? Yes. 
Moreover, verse 30, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What we need to understand from that is there will one day come your glorification and it's nothing that you did. It's all him. Praise God for that. And so as we look at this, we must realize that difficulties can in fact foster endurance. And that endurance produces character in us and that character produces hope. And I would say, I would define for you hope as a forward-looking optimism that God will do what He says He is going to do so that it changes how you live your life today. Let me say that for you again. A forward-looking optimism that God will do what He says He is going to do so that it changes how you live your life today. If you want to be a hopeful person, hoping in that which God has done, hoping in, in, in things that will not disappoint, it means that you look forward with a sense that, God, you are good, you are true, your promises are true, I'm going to live in light of that truth and never doubt that you're at work, Lord. And I'm going to live today with joy, with confidence in that. Do you live in light of that hope? Do you have that hope? The word says that this hope will not disappoint. Now, it's an interesting thing because sometimes, no doubt, you've experienced things that maybe you've hoped in and, and you found that it disappointed you. And of course, we should intellectually understand, well, if I was hoping in thing, the things of this world, then, then maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't quite satisfy. Maybe it wouldn't, in fact, do what I, what I thought it was going to do. But, but maybe you find yourself saying, I, I, I'm hoping in the promises of Scripture, but, but there's days when I find myself doubting. There's days when I find myself wondering, is this really going to materialize the, the way that I think it's going to materialize? If you'll indulge me for a moment with a quick story, I, I, I found that it, it provides at least somewhat of an analogy to what Paul starts to go into here. And, and like any analogy, I would admit on the front end, it pales in comparison to the true hope of glory that he's talking about, but it helps to paint a picture. You see, I'm, I'm blessed that my parents in their retirement had made their way to South Carolina. They live in the upstate on one of the lakes up there, and it's truly a, it's a beautiful area. It's a wonderful area to go and visit and to, and to relax. And every so often we get the opportunity to take someone with us up to the, to the lake. And, and, and being that it's a truly beautiful place, a place that we love to go, it's one of those things where there's excitement when we tell someone about it. When someone gets the opportunity to, to go along, you, you begin to, to tell them about the things they'll experience, the things that they'll, they'll see. And, and certainly as you make your, your way up, you, know, you reach that two and a half hour mark and like anybody, you find yourself kind of going, okay, are we there yet, right? And, and there's parts of the drive, no doubt, that you're thinking, well, okay, this is a little anticlimactic. But we know that just when you're about three minutes out, you see a bridge ahead, and you know that when you get to this bridge, you're going to start to see the lake. And just as you come over the bridge and you look out over the lake, then you start to see the mountains. And then you start to describe to the person, you say, we're almost there. And trust me, you're not going to be disappointed. There's a certain level of excitement. And how can I have that excitement? How can I have that confidence as I'm describing it to them? Well, because I've been there. Because I've experienced it myself. Now you may be asking the question now, Brennan, have you, have you been to heaven? Have you, have you experienced glory? No, not yet. But what Paul tells us here shortly is you can trust that this hope will not disappoint because you have experienced some of it already. 
He hasn't just left you in a place where he's saying, just believe me. No, he's already begun to show you. What is it that God has done? Well, it says here in verse 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. You see, what Paul is writing about here is he's saying, God hasn't just not done anything yet. In fact, he's done incredible work already. So not only having been justified by faith, do we have one, peace with God, two, access to God, three, the ability to rejoice in hope, but four, we already know the love of God. It's been poured out into our hearts, Christian, by the Holy Spirit. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwelling in us, should serve to give us confident hope that God loves us, that he's with us, that he's going to do what he said he was going to do. But it's not just that. Further, it says that he demonstrated this very love for us as we look at verse 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time, that can also be translated at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God, verse 8, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Would you die for the ungodly? Would you die for a good man? Some would, some have. Not many. Yet Christ, when... And here, listen, this is what Paul says of us when we were weak, ungodly, sinners, and still the enemy of God. He demonstrated his great love for you by dying. And so, yes, you experiencing this already can be confident that the hope of glory will not disappoint because look at what he has already done for you. Further, if he died for you, and look at verses 9 and 10. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Once again, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, access to God, hope in God. We've experienced the love of God. And number five, we also have the assurance of our salvation. That's a wonderful thing, friends. How many of you perhaps have found yourself at different times doubting your own salvation? Or maybe having fallen into sin again, given into temptation, you've convinced yourself that you're beyond God's grace. It's there for everyone else, but for me, I've gone too far. Let me ask you this. If Christ died for us while we were sinners, while we were lost, ungodly, weak, now that we have been justified by the shedding of His blood, what reason have we to fear the wrath of God? Furthermore, if His death accomplished this, then how much more should the fact that He's alive give us confidence in our salvation? Amen? 
And so then we have wonderful passages like Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Guys, what Paul wants us to understand here is to consider these are the things that are accomplished through justification by faith. These are the things that through salvation you can lay hold of and say, yes, these are truths now about my life. And it should change the way that we see things, the way that we act, the way that we behave, the way that we go about day to day. And truly, in my opinion, we could end right there. We could end in verse 10. But just like has been the pattern of Paul to this point, he continues on in verse 11 as he says, and not only that. How many of you have ever gotten just sucked into an infomercial? Ron Papil, the Ronco Rotisserie, anybody? Anybody with that one? No, really? That was a pretty good one a while back. And you, and, and, and you find this thing, and you, and you sort of, you're watching it, right? And you're thinking, wow, that's a, oh, well, that's a pretty good deal. And then what happens? Wait, there's more, right? Now, now lest I, I, I be guilty here of somehow comparing the truth of the gospel to an infomercial, which would be heresy. The, the, the pattern is much the same. And the amazing thing about this is, is that's what grace is. God's riches at Christ's expense. God, uh, our Father who is in heaven, who, who, who we know very little about even, just in our finite understanding, has riches beyond what we could even imagine, far more than what we could even try to think about in the material sense. He's a God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. He has cattle on a thousand hills. His resources are beyond us. And continually in God's grace, what he says to you, Christian, is there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, over and over and over. And I'm of the opinion that it will be that way for eternity. And so Paul here says, this is not only that, all these things that come as a blessing of salvation, and it's not only that, but we also, he says, verse 11, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What's he saying here? Let's state the truth of this first. Those of you who know Jesus, you have received the reconciliation. You have been reconciled. You've been made right. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And so then look at what Paul writes next here. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5, then he says, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So, if you're following along there, what you need to understand is not only have we been reconciled ourselves, Christian, but we have been committed the word of reconciliation. What does that mean? Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. 
as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It means we've become ambassadors of that reconciliation, representatives of Him. And so not only has He done all of this work, and do we then get to experience the blessings that come from that, but then also He desires to use us to be representatives for Him, to be ambassadors of that very reconciliation. And so then, what is the sixth blessing this morning that He's talking about here? If you're taking notes, it's that we can rejoice in God. We can exult in God. This word rejoice means jubilation. It means exultant rejoicing. And so, friends, what's the implication here? As those who have been reconciled, Having been justified, we have peace, access, hope, love, assurance. So then we should also have joy. We should also have joy. We should demonstrate to others that what we know and experience because of Christ is truly amazing. And I don't mean to be condemning this morning because as I'll share, I'm just as guilty far more often than what I'd like, but too many Christians are walking around looking like you're sucking on a lemon. You know that face. And please hear me on this. If we want a lost and dying world to desire to know Jesus, yes, that's a work of the Spirit, but He desires to use you, Christian. And so what does the world think about your faith? What does the world think about about how you're living for Him? Are you demonstrating joy? Are you a joyful person? Are people saying, "Ah, I want to spend time with you. I want to be around you. I love your perspective. Hey, this seems like it's really bad news, but but man, you, you seem like you've got it together. Or maybe there's times when you don't have it together, but even then you say, God's good. He's at work. It's okay. I'm struggling right now, but God's going to get me through this. You're testifying to His goodness. Is your life pointing others to Jesus? I fear that too often we fall short in this area, myself included. John Stott writes this. He says that we should be the most positive people in the world. He says we cannot mooch around the place with a dropping hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No, we exult, that is, we rejoice in God. Then every part of our life becomes suffused with glory. Christian worship then becomes a joyful celebration of God and Christian living a joyful service of God. So come, he says, let us exult in God together. Folks, I'll speak for me for a moment. I am ashamed of the frequency at which I allow myself to become negative, to moan and groan and live without joy, without rejoicing in God. It's not to be that way. And I would challenge each of you to consider the same. Let's allow the Lord to search our hearts. Yes, life has its heaviness, but nothing we face in this life, and I repeat, nothing can overwhelm the blessings of salvation. And what does this look like practically? Well, certainly I could say be joyful. That's it. In the midst of difficult circumstances, be joyful. But I know sometimes it's good for us to have uh, some very practical application. I was reading earlier in the week a, a commentary that referenced some thoughts from Tim Keller in writing on Romans And he provided six considerations of the signs of rejoicing in God that I'll paraphrase for us as we close. The first is this, that your mind is deeply satisfied by the doctrine of justification by faith. That is, that you rest in the fact that He has done the work. And you know, Lord Jesus, you did this for me, not me. Thank you, Lord. 
Two, you only think of your past in terms of your past. That is, you rejoice in what God has done. You don't wallow in the mess of former days. Three, when you discover in yourself a new character flaw, you don't then doubt God's love. Rather, you appreciate even more His grace. Fourth, when your conscience accuses you, you don't look to your own performance as defense, but run instead to His grace. Fifth, when you face criticism, you don't react or declare it unfair, but inwardly you recognize that you are far worse than they even know, yet you're covered by the blood of Jesus. And sixth, when you face death, you do so with serenity, knowing that you are going to a friend. And I would say this, friends, with right perspective on what we have in salvation through Christ, our lives ought to be a declaration of His goodness. As one who has peace with God, access to God, hope and glory, experience of love, and assurance of salvation, we should then rejoice in Him and that joy be on display for others to see. Amen? I need more amens than that. Amen? Amen means you agree. right? And we need to agree with this. And listen, if you're here today and you don't, if this is a struggle for you, well then that's where you seek Him first and foremost but the prayers of others who can help to hold you accountable, who maybe can walk alongside you as you're saying, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that I'm experiencing this. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, which tells us, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for your word and the blessing of it. And Lord, we understand by experience, Lord, that sometimes it can be difficult to receive it. Lord, it convicts, it exposes, it challenges. And Lord, might I just pray for a moment. I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to just say it's, it's for me and if others want to agree. But Lord, I'm sorry for the times when I take Philippians 4.4 4 and I think it says rejoice in the Lord sometimes. Not always. Lord, I'm guilty of that. Of allowing circumstances, Lord, to get the best of me. To rob me of joy. To convince me, Lord, that it's too difficult or it's too hopeless. That I forget, Lord, your faithfulness throughout my life. Lord, forgive me of that. I repent of it, Lord. And Lord, I pray, help me to have eyes that are firmly fixed upon you heart that rejoices always in what it is that you have done. So that, Lord, when I do face difficulties, Lord, that though it may be difficult, I run to you and I trust in you and I trust in your promises and I trust in your word and I know, Lord, that you're working and that if it's hard, Lord, I can trust that you're doing something in my life to change me, to mold me, to shape me, to make me more like you. That, Lord, you, were, you are fostering in me greater character, Lord, you're giving me hope. Lord, may that be the case for each and every one of us, Lord, that we would be a people. Lord, that our lives are a great declaration of your goodness. That others, Lord, would see joy in us. Do that work, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.